in a September 8th article from Christianity Today called State of Theology, Evangelicals Hold Steady on Doctrine, More Outspoken on Politics. It talked about the doctrine of the Trinity and several other results that caused me to think we can have a series on this. So this is the second episode of this three-part series, and I titled it, Is Jesus God or Just a Man? If that interests you, stick around. Welcome to WCKS, where we can keep silent about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome back to the channel. It is awesome to have you back with me. I am your host, Michael Russell. In today's episode, we will be continuing in the series we started last time. Uh, today's episode is called, Is Jesus God or Just a Man? So let's get into our discussion. As noted, a recent article released by Christianity Today called State of Theology, Evangelicals Hold Steady on Doctrine, More Outspoken on Politics, there were several statistics that provoked my interest. The survey, conducted by Lifeway Research in association with Legionnaire Ministries, which was R.C. Sproul's ministry, had, uh, has been conducted in much the same way over the uh, you know, series of two-year increments starting in 2014. In this year's results, the series uh, for the series, we are going to be focusing on the doctrine of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and who he really is, and who the Holy Spirit is. However, in this survey, the identity of the Trinity was solid from evangelicals that were surveyed. However, as the article goes on to outline, there are several inconsistencies that are found within professing evangelicals. I felt that going from the Trinity to the person, uh, the persons of the Trinity would be a good way to start. As you may recall, for those that are following the channel, last time we went through the doctrine of the Trinity. And I know I spent a, a little while um, in that, uh, looking at history, and I know some people were a little taken aback by that or a little off-put by that, but there was a reason I went through that history in order to um, help define the challenges that the church was dealing with and you know, see, in fact, that the church is still dealing with some of those challenges. So let's continue. In the article, which I left a link in the episode description, we read a quote, When it comes to the doctrine of God, evangelicals fare pretty well. Consistent with the results from 2016 and 18, evangelical respondents were nearly unanimous in affirming the God that God is a perfect being, 97%, that God is a, a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 96%, and that God cares about our day-to-day -day decisions, 87%. Now, that's the end of the quote. The first episode, we dealt with the Trinity. And I know, like I said, that there was a section there where I went through history. But you'll see in a moment, uh, from the article itself, it brings up uh, some of those actual um, circumstances that were dealt with back in the, you know, the Nicene Council. However, they still exist today. So, remember, evangelical Christians believe God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what the article also reveals, when questions are asked about the different persons of the Trinity, 
The response answers reflect an ignorance of the doctrine of Christ, or Christology, and the Holy Spirit, which is uh, maybe the study of pneumatology. So in today's study in, of Christ, which will include some soteriology, or the Christian plan of salvation, I hope to show how believing in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit demands a belief in the Son, Jesus Christ, that he be recognized as God, God the Son, and for great reason. As noted, the article starts by pointing out the positive statements that, you know, 96% believe in uh, the Trinity, 97% believe God is perfect, and uh, 87% believe that God cares about our day-to-day beliefs. However, a bit later in the article, I quote, What about Jesus? When it comes to our Lord and Savior, God, God the Son, things get a bit more complicated. As noted by previous surveys, a disappointingly high number of evangelicals still believe the heresy of Arianism, which suggests that Jesus is not God, but rather his greatest creation. Two-thirds of evangelicals, 65%, affirm the statement that, quote, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, end quote. And I'm continuing in the, in the overall quote of the, of the uh, article. This figure is lower than in the last two surveys. In 2018, it was 87% agreed, and in 2016, 71%. I beg your pardon, I said in, 80, in 2018, 78% agreed, and in 2016, 71% agreed. Agreed with what? Agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Okay? Now, I continue in the survey. In the 2016 survey, LifeWay added the phrase, the greatest, or I'm sorry, and greatest, resulting in a 40-point increase in positive responses. I'm going to stop there. So what, what that says is, in 2014, the first year of the survey, the question was, Jesus is the first being created by God, or the statement is that. So you, you either said, I agree or I don't agree. Jesus is the first being created by God. In 2016, two years later, second survey, they decided to add the, the included words, and greatest. So the, the question or the, the statement is, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Okay, so by adding that phrase, and greatest, 40 percentage points more people, a totaling of 65%, responded positively just by adding and greatest. So the article goes on, this seems to be a mitigating factor, given that evangelicals focus much more on their faith on Jesus, and so might be inclined to defend his greatness and overlook the phrase created being. And, and I'll stop there. So what, it, what they're saying or suggesting is, by adding that phrase and greatest, People overlooked the second part of the, the overall um, you know, question, if you would, which the uh, question or the statement is, 
Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. So the the article is suggesting by adding the phrase and greatest, people seem to pass over or miss the fact it said being created by God. So they, they see Jesus is the first and greatest by God, almost in essence. So that is what they're kind of attributing maybe the response um, the significant response to. Uh, however, going on in the in the in the article, it says, in a question that was new to the survey this year, a sizable minority, thirty percent, of those with evangelical beliefs, do not believe that Jesus is God, but instead think he is simply a great teacher. It goes on, while 66% disagree with this claim, so 30%-ish believe Jesus is not God, 66% don't, okay? It is certainly, um, it is concerning that nearly a third of those with evangelical beliefs do not believe that Jesus is God. Similarly, more than one in 10 evangelicals, or 12%, up from just 8% in 2018, do not agree that, quote, God counts a person as righteous not because of works, one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. I'll stop right there. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what that says is 10%, 12% of those claiming to be evangelicals do not believe salvation is due to faith in Christ alone. They actually must also think that one's works counts as being righteous before God, that it, that it has some factor into it. And the article goes on, Oddly, this is a much lower percentage than the portion of evangelicals who believe Jesus is not God, but still, the number is worrisome. And they'll stop there. So, so the perspective is, those that were surveyed said that they believe that God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. However, they deny that Jesus is God, even though he's the Son of God, and God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then 10% of people believe salvation is not necessarily only through faith in Jesus Christ that there must be some works or some other additional things that that you got to do I guess to to be saved or be to, to be righteous in God's sight. So there is a lot of misunderstanding of true solid essential biblical theology related to Christianity. So for this episode we're focusing on Christ and because of its very nature, soteriology, or the plan of salvation, okay? And I think that helps bolster, I know it does, it, it helps us understand why it is essential to believe that Jesus Christ is God, God the Son, okay? So amen, let's, uh, let's uh, finish out the thingy, uh, the, the uh, quote that I want to bring in. Uh, it says, a key facet of the debate between the early church fathers and the Arian opposition was that a Jesus who is not God 
could not save. And faith in him would mean nothing. If two-thirds of those who don't think Jesus is God still think salvation depends on him, then it's fair to say that a surprising number of evangelicals lack awareness of the theology of salvation, or soteriology, end quote. Amen to that, brothers and sisters. This is indeed a lack of awareness of the theology of salvation, or soteriology. So let's try to remedy that, shall we? Let's start with an arsenal of scriptures to work on the deity of Christ piece of our discussion. So we're going to be looking at the deity of Christ and a little bit into soteriology or the plan of salvation from Christianity, from a Christian worldview, what the Bible teaches, okay? That Christ is not just a man, but he's also God. He's the God-man. He's 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And this, quite frankly, really excites me. This is an exciting part of Scripture and, and talking about Jesus and God and the Trinity and these doctrines is just, it just really motivates me. It really fires me up. So I, I am excited here. So let's get started with the Gospel of John. We're going to be starting there and hold on for the ride. I will be running through several passages of Scripture to build the case uh, about Christ being God, and then we will link that to soteriology. So with that, let us read. We're starting in John chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 1, and we'll read 1 through 5 and, and proceed from there. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then if we skip down to verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Excuse me. What a powerful passage. So let's look a little bit at it and, and pick it apart a little bit. We see the Word is identified in verse 1 as being with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And it goes on, and the Word was God. Then in verse 14 we see clearly, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So clearly, and yet hard maybe to logically wrap our heads around it, the possibility that God, the creator of all things, which verse 3 made clear, remember it says, all things were made through him, the word, and without him, the word, was not anything made that was made. So the God of creation becomes flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So how can God, who is infinite, having no beginning or ending, 
and who made all things and, 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 and created all things become flesh himself. Especially in the way that we know Scripture tells us that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. He wasn't, wasn't born by Mary and Joseph sleeping together. There was a supernatural uh, event that took place where God impregnated Mary with a holy seed, if you would, the seed of God. Um, that Jesus, when he was born, uh, he was worshipped by the uh, Magi. They bowed down and worshipped him. Even during his ministry, he's casting out demons, he's, he's forgiving people's sins, he's, he's uh, raising the, the dead, he's, he's causing people that are crippled to be healed, um, and yet Scripture clearly tells us he never sinned. So what, what is going on here? What is going on here? So let's look at some passages to po- uh, support the deity of Christ a little bit more. In Colossians chapter 1, we pick up in verse 15, and it's speaking of Christ, and it says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." And we'll stop there. Now, some people may, may stumble on the firstborn of all creation. We, we got to understand the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is that doctrine that discusses the 100% divine and 100% human uh, aspect of Christ, that he is the God-man. So as God, he has no beginning. But when he took on flesh... There was a a birth there from the humanity side of things. But God never ceased to be God. God the Son was always God the Son. And there was a point in history where he took on flesh some 2,000 years ago. Okay? So when it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Well, obviously, God doesn't play into that aspect of creation, meaning God wasn't created. So all things were created. So anything that exists from creation came out of Christ, God the Son. God the Son created it. But God himself, God the Son, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existed already. They don't, they didn't, he didn't have a beginning. Okay? That is the the part that we may have some difficulty wrapping our head around, but Scripture has no difficulty displaying it. Okay? It isn't Scripture that's at fault or, or, or struggling. It's us that might struggle because we can't logically conceive how can a being be 100% God and 100% man. Uh, We might even struggle with 50-50, 50% God, 50% man, but that's not what Scripture teaches, okay? He's 100% God, 100% man. Now, if we move to Hebrews chapter 1, which is a super, super awesome section of Scripture, and I highly, highly recommend you study the book of Hebrews, because it is riddled with all that we are talking about right now. 
but we'll read from the beginning in uh, chapter one, uh, chapter one, verse one. It says, "Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He spoke to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world." He, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory. I'm sorry. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, guys, that is hugely awesome. Let's keep reading. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, now this is God speaking, the father, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. In verse 7, it goes on. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministering ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What a passage, guys. There's so much in this, just this first uh, nine verses of Hebrews chapter one. But let's go back and look at verse Five. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Or again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And we'll stop there. Now, why am I focused on that? Well, the very first commandment... (laughs) In the Ten Commandments, uh, God gives Moses to give to the people is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not worship any, you know, god of stone or any animals or any, you know, anything of all creation. So, if God says you shall worship only God, and then in Hebrews we read that God says to the angels, bow down and worship my son. We clearly have a connection of the deity of Christ from God the Father, um, making that clear. There's several other references in this very one. Um, Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, He talks about him creating all things. I mean, there is just so much, so much richness in this. Um, I could spend probably the whole study just on that section right there. But let's, uh, let's move on and um, discuss, even if Jesus was born supernaturally by God and the Virgin, 
he would only be a man and unable to pay the debt of sin that is owed by mankind. So even if we we want to argue, no, I don't believe Jesus is God. I believe he's perfect. I believe he's sinless. Uh, I believe he's God's son. I believe he's a righteous man. I believe he's a prophet. I believe he's all these great things. We would be stuck again with how is it then that he could pay the debt of sin that is infinite. And that is where I think we need to really develop our understanding that sin is something more dreadful than I think we really, really want to give, um, give it credit. Okay, so we're going to move a little bit into the soteriology side of the equation. I think I've established at least some good working passages, which again are going to be in the description. So if you want to go back and look those up. Um, that clearly speak of Jesus' deity. John chapter 1, uh, Colossians 1, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, and those are just a few. We can, we can dig into far more. Um, but let's establish some things. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. That's 23a. And Romans 3.23a tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So from conception... Human beings born in the natural way, man and woman laying together and conceiving. From conception, we are spiritually dead due to sin. The seed of man is corrupt due to sin. So all offspring by man, man and woman, are sinful from conception. You need to understand that. This is essential in understanding why God had to come to earth and pay the debt of sin. Okay? So let's build upon this. We are spiritually dead from conception and destined for a physical death sometime in our earthly future. Okay? We need someone to save us from from this because we cannot save ourselves. We're dead. If I was physically dead laying in my coffin... There's nothing I can do to then make myself alive. If you're spiritually dead due to sin, the corrupted seed of man from the fall of Adam, then there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You are in desperate need of a Savior, something outside of you to do it. And again, if we want to point to Jesus, but we don't want to accept that he's God, then you're pointing to a man, only a man. And what power does a man have to save you? Even if he was born of a virgin, supernaturally by God's seed, which makes him a perfect man, he is still a creature, if that's all Jesus is. He's just a creature. And that is the problem that the article made reference to about the Arian heresy. Arian argued that Jesus was not God, but he was the greatest creation of God. And the church proper, the Orthodox Church, the councils that met together and fought and debated this based on Scripture and evidence, ultimately voted that as heresy. They, they pushed that out as heresy. This is heresy. This is lie. This is not true. And in fact, you'll see as we develop on this that it breaks down. It absolutely breaks down and doesn't hold to how it could be saving. 
If we, if we do not believe in these essential doctrines in Christianity, then our faith is futile. Okay? So, we read a couple Romans passages, wages of sin is death, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We'll pick up in Romans chapter 3, verse 6 and following. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats, throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What a passage, what an indictment. Brothers and sisters, you need to hear that. You need to hear that. From a pure God-focused place of who we are before him, that is it. We do not have the ability to fully comprehend what perfection is and what God's standard of perfection and righteousness is. We just can't grasp it. So we often are very self-pitying and, and feel this is very harsh and mean-spirited of God, but we cannot understand that the author of life, the creator of the universe, has a expectation and standard, and we have rebelled against him. We have committed treason by, by uh, uh, rebelling against him, dishonoring him, rejecting him, and in fact, following after the enemy, following after Satan. Adam and Eve, the serpent deceived, and they followed after the serpent. They disregarded what God said and listened to the serpent, their master. Okay, That's the facts of Scripture. If we look at Hebrews chapter 9, now we're getting into some soteriology. We are all sinners in absolute desperate need of a Savior. So in Hebrews chapter 9, it informs us in verse 22, Indeed, under the law... Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hmm. Think about that. In order for sins to be forgiven, blood must be shed. Hmm. Okay. This seems to be an offering of some option to the sinner, right? If we can just shed enough blood... We can pay off the debt of sin that we owe, I think, right? Let's continue to build on that truth further as we are instructed from the writer of Hebrews. Again, Hebrews is awesome. You need to read it. You need to read it. You need to read it. Study it. Study it. Get a commentary or two, good commentaries, um, scholarly commentaries on them. Uh, it, it, it is one of the most fascinating and fantastic books of the Bible. Okay, um, this is Mike Russell's opinion. But we continue in uh, Hebrews chapter 5. We'll pick up in verse 1. 
It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Okay, we'll stop there. So, the writer of Hebrews is building upon the facts that the high priest role under Aaron, Moses' brother, back in the days of Moses, uh, Aaron was the first high priest, and from his lineage uh, came the priestly line. And those that were elected sovereignly by God and, and placed upon the hearts of men to elect them became high priests, and their role was to represent the people before God and make atonement for the people before God, okay? So the writer of Hebrews is trying to build a, a case here to say, you Jews know this, the, the book of Hebrews is written to Christian Jews, and he's trying to make the case, you guys know this, you know how the, the priesthood works. And then he goes on in Hebrews chapter 9, we pick up at verse 6, and it says, These preparations having thus been made, where the priest prepares and uh, to go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice of atonement and all that. It says, These preparations have thus been made, having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section of the temple, performing their ritual duties. So we'll stop right there. So the temple had three major areas, the outer court, the uh, inner court, or the holy place, and then the holy of holies, or the most holy place, which was behind the curtain where the, only the high priest could go. He went in there once a year to offer a sacrifice of atonement for the people and himself every year annually. Okay, so we're talking now about the holy place, the, the middle section where the priest would go to perform the duties for the people on a more daily, weekly basis. And in verse 7, it says, but into the second only, into the second area, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the people were supposed to bring offerings for their intentional sins or the sins they, re they recognized, but just in case uh, the, the annual atonement was done by the high priest and the holy, holy of Holies to cover even the sins we didn't know of, because we got all kinds of them. Okay, now Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 picks up and says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form, of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So I'll restate that easier. Since everything that was established by God under Moses and the law and the rituals and the priesthood and all that is actually a copy or a picture of the reality which is in heaven and, and supernatural, the ritual of going through this regularly doesn't make perfect those who are participating in it. Okay, and we pick up in verse 2. Otherwise, if it did, if it did make them perfect, otherwise, would they not have to, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So, 
if if it was satisfy uh, if it was um, possible that that would satisfy the debt of sin, then it would only have to happen once, and then you'd be saved. It'd be paid. The shedding of blood worked, and it's over. But verse three goes on and says, "But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible." For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, what is it about the sin and why all the bloodshed isn't paying off the debt? So it has to be repeated over and over and over. So what is it about the sin? So folks, that is our dilemma. Our sin is against an infinite God the creator of the universe who had no beginning or ending, everlasting, perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful. We, the creature, rebelled against him. We, we committed treason against him, rejecting him and following the other, the, the enemy, which was also a created being. Okay, So we sinned against an infinite God, and we ourselves are finite. All creation is finite, created, had a beginning. So, for us to offer any sacrifice of animals spilling their blood, remember, it's the spilling of blood that covers sin, according to Hebrews and Leviticus. Um, the fact that the animals were corrupted as well at the fall of man, all of creation became corrupt. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Everything was taken from the ground, so it's all cursed, Okay. So all of these animals, no matter how many you pile up, and, and you know, I mean, if you look at the story of when Solomon, um, you know, kind of christens the temple, he sacrifices tens of thousands of animals. I mean, it's just insane. And that still didn't cover, cover the sin debt. Okay? So the fact that we have sinned against the infinite God means that the debt we owe is infinity, is infinite. Okay? So even if we shed our own blood, allow ourselves to be sacrificed to God to pay our debt, it's not even going to make a blip on, the, on what we owe. And we will be quickly ushered into debtor's prison, which is hell, where we pay every last penny of the debt we owe, which will never happen, which means we're going to be in hell, separated from God, forever. Folks, we need a Savior. <laughs> we need a Savior. And since we see that Jesus is God from several of these passages, let's put the pieces together. We'll read a very famous passage of Scripture, John chapter 3, and we'll pick up in verse 16. And it reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. You see, in order to pay the debt of sin we owe, which is infinite, 
it requires one that is infinite to do it. There is only one who is infinite. God. God himself had to pay the debt of sin, and in order to pay it, he had to be made like us, as once again the book of Hebrews informs us. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, he meaning Christ, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels he helps, Christ helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted as well. You see, God paid the debt of sin, and in order to do that, he had to be made like us and take on flesh and be fully man while remaining fully God, in order to represent us as our great high priest. Then go into the true holy of holies, that that inner section where they made atonement sacrifice once a year. He He would then enter the true holy of holies, which is heaven, and be sacrificed. Let's pick that up in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. It reads, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifers sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Wow. How better to wrap this episode up than that segment from Hebrews? And if you haven't noticed, I pulled a lot of passages from Hebrews. And, and as I've said already, the reason is this book significantly deals with the deity of Christ and the reason God had to come to earth to be the propitiation, the one that uh, redeems or makes, makes right with the Father the debt that was owed. God had to do it himself And that we must believe. You believe in a trinity, praise the Lord. 
but then don't disbelieve the Son is God. It makes no sense. If God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then the Son is God. And he took on flesh in order to represent us so that he can pay the debt in full. The God-man. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I hope you believe and I pray you, you would pray that God would open your heart to hear from him. I was thrilled to work through this and pray with uh, pray that you were blessed as well. If you haven't, subscribe to the channel. And if you have time, leave a comment. Many of the podcast pa- uh, platforms offer this option, and I would love it if you would uh, make a comment and pass this on to friends and allow them to come join us. Next time in this series, we will be looking at the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit, the least known person of the Trinity. Until then, 